Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. If you have a Bible with you, Exodus chapter 20, please find your way to Exodus chapter 20. We are studying the Ten Commandments, approaching the second commandment today, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, But each week I am reading all of the Ten Commandments and not simply the verse that we are uh, resting on in the moment. Exodus chapter 20, would you follow along as I read verses 1 through 17. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his female servant or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me? God, we approach this time of instruction from your word by the power of your spirit. And I pray that your spirit would help us and would apply to us the truth of your word. Father, I pray that you would give us a greater understanding of the second commandment and what it means, how we may obey it better if we are in violation of it. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as your people to obey and keep your commands. God, I pray today as your word is proclaimed here and in a great many places around the world, Father, I pray that the sinner would be humbled to repentance and salvation. I pray that the holiness of your people would be promoted, and I pray that Christ the Savior would be exalted. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. I have titled the sermon, No Idols or Images. It's really quite something to think about how to title a sermon from the Ten Commandments. It's fairly self-explanatory, and so we keep them very simple. No idols or images. My aim today is to call out how we may, as God's people, how we may be in innocent violation of this commandment. 
and to call us from the authority of God's word to a stricter observance of it. Have you ever considered the statement, that image is burned in my mind? Familiar with that? That scene is burned in my mind. That image is burned in my mind. Many in the room, not all, but many, will remember the days when cameras required a roll of film. And you had to put the film in the camera to take pictures. And you could only take so many of them because the film was only so long. And if you were lucky, your dad had a really good camera that he bought long before you were born, and you could take 35 pictures with that camera. But when you came to the end of the roll of film, you had to take the roll out, wind it up, take it out. If you were really lucky, your parents had a spare roll of film, but not often because they cost too much. Then when the roll of film came out, you had to take it to the photo lab, and you had to give it to someone to develop the pictures on the film. And then you had to wait an agonizingly long amount of time before you could see the pictures you took and hope they turned out. Until the invention of the one-hour photo lab, which you probably normally skipped because it also cost too much. So you probably found yourself with pictures that you wanted to see, and you probably found yourself waiting at least a week, and those who are older than me are like, a week? Now, of course, there's the Polaroid and the click instant thing. See, phones are not a new thing. We just found a way to better advance the Polaroid. That's all we did. But photography is actually a new development. And everybody's thinking, Pastor, what are you talking about? Photography is actually a rather new development for humanity, not just for America, for humanity. The internet, which never lies, internet searches unanimously point to the oldest known existing photograph dating to 1826 or 27. That's the oldest known existing photograph. Dates to 1826 or 27. I just want to point out, that's not yet, though in a few years, that's not yet 200 years old. So in terms of humanity, photography is a very young development. Prior to that photograph becoming a popular means of capturing images, in order to capture an image, a person had to have a lot of paint and a still subject and a lot of skill and a lot of time to capture an image. In the middle 1800s, 1840 to 1870 or 80, pictures were taken in a style that is known as collodion wet plate photography. Now, you, you may know what that is, or you may have to be a nerd to know what that is. You're an ultra nerd if you've ever had your picture taken in this way, and I have, and I can prove it. But not right now, and not right here. <clears throat> collodion wet plate photography, a man would take a very box-like looking thing, typically on a tripod, would set it, and then would frame a picture with, whether it was a scene or whether it was a person, would frame a picture and hope to get everything lined up just right. And this box-type device had a lens cap in front of it and had a glass plate inserted into it with a shield on it. Now, we're all accustomed to the pictures from the Westerns where the guy holds the thing and the thing explodes. They're like, ready? Now, that's after wet plate photography. 
that's a newer development to us than wet plate photography. With wet plate photography, the, the shield would be removed from the glass, and then the lens would be, would be removed to capture the subject, and what would happen is that ambient light from God's creation would funnel down to this box and would burn the image onto the glass. And then the photographer would quickly put the shield back in, remove the whole thing, frame and all that held the shield, would then take it into this dark room. They would take it in this dark room and they would apply a certain amount of chemical over the glass and they would tip it and shake it. And many of you have probably only ever seen this happen in the movies. And I promise you, if you're ever anywhere where you can see this happen for real or have your family picture taken in that way, do it. You will not regret having this ancient form of photography capturing your image and on display in your home. You won't regret it whatsoever. They would put these chemicals around it, and the chemicals would go over the image that the light had burned onto the glass, and it would reveal the picture. I've poured over countless amounts of images in my life. I can't even think of the thousands and thousands of images I've poured over in my life that were wet plate photographs. If you've ever looked at Civil War photography, that's what you're looking at, an image where the light burned an image onto a glass and a photographer would develop that. Our film cameras worked in a very similar fashion, but at infinitely greater speeds. And now everything's all digital and people are like, film, what a waste of time. No, 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 film is still an awesome art. I cannot count the number of depictions of the Lord Jesus Christ that I have seen in my life. They are burned on my mind. Perhaps you too have an image that comes to mind when I mention an image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Exodus chapter 20 verse 4 you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandment. You shall not, I condensed it, I taught the young children on Wednesday night what an ellipsis is, the dot, 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 as I affectionately call it. You shall not make for yourself, bow down to, or serve. I actually stopped compiling a list of how many times this is found in the Bible. So often, it is the call of God to his people. You shall not have for yourself an idol. No idols, no images. Now, this is where this sermon diverges from everything you anticipated about this commandment, requiring your attention to what I'm about to talk about. In the first commandment, God says, God who has delivered, redeemed, and is preparing to dwell with his people. In the first commandment, God says, you shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment takes care of all of the false gods and false images and other gods that could be set up in a person's life. Last week, I, perhaps mockingly, perhaps not, depends on your seat, spoke about the 
major sporting event that was taking place as potentially becoming a god for certain people. That's a reality. Somewhere in the world, the Super Bowl is a god for someone. And countless other gods may be thought of that people bow down and worship. They're taken care of in the first commandment. God's people shall have no other gods before him. So all the idols, all the images, everything that could be set up as a God, as an image in your life, is all taken care of in the first commandment. Then what is the second commandment talking about? The second commandment is talking about worshiping idols or images as the Lord God of heaven. The first commandment deals with idols. The second commandment deals with don't envision me by anything other than my word declaring who I am to you. You shall not make for yourself, bow down to, or serve. I had to put that in John White E's, which is scary for many of you, I know, but it helps me. Don't make your own, use someone else's, serve or worship any image of the Lord God. You shall not make you shall not bow down to or serve. Don't make for yourself. Don't bow down to someone else's or serve or worship any image of God. Look what he says. He goes on, though. You shall not make, bow down to or serve, what? A carved image or any, I want you to pay very careful attention to the Lord's words, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You'll recall, context is important. In fact, some would say context is king when deciphering and understanding God's word. You'll recall that the people of Israel have been delivered and redeemed out of the land of Egypt in the house of slavery. God says so in verse 2. They were redeemed out of, delivered out of a culture, we spoke last week, of many gods. And these many gods had many images. In the ten plagues, this is one example, in the ten plagues that God brought on Pharaoh and Egypt, every god that was confronted was embodied by something. And the one example that I chose, because I remember teaching through it, and I remember trying not to giggle as I did, was the one about the frogs. And you remember that Pharaoh and Egypt are overrun with frogs. You remember that the Bible tells us the frogs were everywhere. They were in the mixing bowls, they were in the beds, they were everywhere. And you remember, what happened is that God brought the plague, and then he took the plague. But when he took the plague, all he did was kill all the frogs. And the Bible says that the land was covered with frogs, and if you're really paying attention, it says that the Egyptians piled the frogs up in heaps and the land stank. I guess, ugh, sometimes the farmers around do stuff with manure and everything stinks. Like, I understand that to some it's just roses and awesome. But there are days when the wind blows and you're like, oh man, gonna have to move or something. Because the smells, you just like, mm. It doesn't last long. The wind carries away and it's gone. It says the whole land stank with the smell of rotting frogs heaped up. And embodied in that was an ancient Egyptian goddess. They found a goddess that they worshipped, a goddess of fertility. I believe that the name of this goddess was Hecht 
if you go back into ancient literature and find it among the gods of Egypt, there was a goddess who is embodied by a frog. So God is literally confronting their gods with the image of their gods. He used the frog to make the frog god stink to them. Nobody any longer wanted to look at a frog. Can you imagine? Anyway, gross. And over and over, and over and over, he did this with the gnats. The cows die like cows are reverenced and worshipped, and all the cows are dead, even up to the firstborn of Pharaoh. Because they worshipped men. Pharaoh's a god, and the firstborn of Egypt die because Pharaoh will not humble himself before God. And so God is confronting every so-called God that they have. And so as God makes his people holy, that he may dwell with them as he teaches them how you're not going to be like the nations around you, he says to them, you're not going to worship me by a likeness or by an image. He tells Moses in about 14 chapters, no man can see me and live. I am too holy, holy, holy for the eye of man to behold. And it's not just carved images. We go to idols and we think in our day of perhaps Buddha. I grew up in Durand. If you grew up in Durand or had any long-term exposure to it, there was a house on a street not far from where I grew up that had a Buddha in front of their house. A little fat baby Buddha. What in the world? What do you think that's doing for you? It's some man made that. Like we need to understand false gods rightly. They're all made by man. Man made them. And then man said, you know what we should do? We should consider that a deity and we should worship it. It'll do good for us. Like, what? Man, we're dumb. No carved images. No likeness. No image, inscription. Think ancient hieroglyphics. Note of anything. You shall not Make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything, look what he says, that is in heaven, that is in the earth, that is in the water. I mean, no worshiping the sun, moon, stars, planets, clouds, no worshiping man, birds, reptiles, fish, water, substance, like you shall not have a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, on the earth, or in the water. Nothing. Keep in mind, he's already confronted the false gods. He's talking of himself. Pastor, I don't know if I believe you. I want to encourage you to read all of the Old Testament. Because always the people of Israel are making images and saying, behold your God. They're not saying, behold a God. They're saying, behold, our God, we made him. When Aaron throws the gold into a fire and a calf comes out, they say, behold, your God that brought you out of Egypt. And Aaron's like, tomorrow we'll offer a feast to the Lord. They're envisioning God as that object, as that image. It's clear in the first commandment, God's people are not to have any other gods before him. It's implied also then that not having idols or images of other gods is also forbidden. Then the second commandment must mean for them then and for us now that God is saying 
do not assign an image to me. Don't carve it. Don't draw it. Don't paint it. Don't put it on a television screen. Don't put it in books. Leave the image of me alone and know what I look like because of what I've declared to you from my word. When we think about images of God, it is likely that what really comes to our mind are images of Christ. Whether we are scoffing at the ridiculous notion of a blonde-haired, blue-eyed man or not, it's 2024 and we've been inundated with thoughts of what Christ looked like. It's interesting. The Bible is very descriptive. Maybe you've considered that thought before, maybe you haven't. From Moses through John the Baptist, the Bible describes many of the people that it talks about. Interesting, the Bible gives us two statements about what Christ appeared to look like. One, found in Isaiah, said that he was nothing special to look at. So when you see that dashing image of our Savior, I mean, who doesn't want to see the Savior coming back on a white horse with the sword coming out of his mouth that cuts down the nations? Are you kidding me? I want to see it. But we haven't. And we don't know what it looks like. When you see that, man has conjured that up. He had no stately form or appearance that we should look at him. Then, the only other statement is found by a guy who has shown the end of all things. And when he saw the Lord Jesus raised and glorified, he fell down. He says, I saw a man who was wearing a long robe and had a golden sash around his waist. John says, his hair was white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze. And all of mankind is saying, and, and, were his eyes blue? Was his hair blonde? What did he look like, John? What was his face like, John? And John says, his face looked like the sun, shining in all of its strength. It came out for a little bit today. Today, tomorrow, whenever the sun next comes out and is unimpeded by any clouds whatsoever, I want you to just direct your eyes to the sun if you can. Like, we can't even do this on planet Earth. We cannot take our eyes and just look at the sun. It burns our eyes from however far away it is. It burns our eyes. And John says, that's the face I saw. There was white hair. There were eyes of fire. And there was a face that looked like the sun shining in full strength. So where do these images come from then? These depictions of Jesus that exist, these likenesses of Christ, they don't come from God. They're man-made. And we're a Christian church, so we don't think often of this, but there are plenty of religions and plenty of other churches out there that have plenty of depictions of God around their house of worship. So, some will say, but that's Jesus, who is God. I can have an image of Jesus because it's Jesus. It's not, it's not God. God in Exodus is not Jesus. That's not true. The Bible teaches us that there is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in three distinct parts, but one God. 
Jesus is God. Jesus himself makes this very clear. It's 2024, and countless images of Jesus Christ exist. There's a magazine at Dollar General that has his face on it, crying out loud. Right now. You can walk into Dollar General, and the other day, as I'm studying this commandment that I've been wrestling with for probably a year and a half or more, as I walk into Dollar General and the doors slide open, and I love how they've rearranged the shelves in there, it's really quite convenient, all of a sudden, bam, there's Jesus. They're everywhere. Interesting. The first, I'll use it lightly, I tried to dig as hard as I could. The first depiction of Christ, real depiction, because there's this weird one. I need you to understand the things I look into to try and deliver God's truth to us so that we understand it. There's this weird one that they found carved on a cell, a Roman cell, of a Christian man who was mocked for being a Christian. I can't remember his name. You can, find, you can look it up for yourself, and whether it's true, I hope it is, but what do we know? It's the internet. But they have a picture of this inscription. And on it, this man who is persecuted for his faith, on it is a cross. It was like a, a, a body figure on the cross and the head of a donkey. They're like, that's the first inscription we have of Jesus. Well, that's mockery of Jesus. That's not an actual picture of him. That's the world doing what the world does, mocking those who have faith in Jesus Christ. The first real depiction of Jesus happens around the third century. I want us to think, you got to be a student of history to really grasp it. Think about all of the images that we have from the time of Jesus and before up to the third century. There's plenty of them, and they're good. Like, people were good at depicting what someone or something looked like. But nobody did that with Jesus, knowingly, until around the third century. So where did the description of that man come from? The Bible doesn't give us one. Where do we get the image that we look at of Jesus Christ? It's man-made. Well, yeah, again, though, but pastor, but that's Jesus, not God. No, God is one, and Jesus is God. And the Bible doesn't describe him, so no idols or images must apply to Jesus as well. The next train of thought, as I fought this out in my own mind, argumentatively and apologetically, the next train of thought logically then becomes, okay, if that's Jesus, but pastor, I'm not worshiping that image. I'm not worshiping that image of Jesus. Like, I doubt, I really doubt there's anyone in this room except for those youngest among us. I really doubt there's anyone in here who has it. If you have never seen a picture of Jesus, I want to meet you after this service. Challenge. I bet everybody has, probably multiple times, probably even yesterday. Jesus is everywhere. Why? Because God has set eternity on the hearts of, man and mind, hearts and mind of mankind, and Jesus is the only substitute for our sin. We're all wrecked by sin. So we're all looking for something, but we're putting an image where we should not put an image. I'm not worshiping that image. No, you may not be worshiping that image. And this is where the awareness of an innocent violation of the second commandment comes into play. This is a real thing. Nobody walked in, you all walked in, you're like, Pastor, it would have been a lot easier if you just told us not to, you know, have video games or sports or, like, if you could have just told us not to have those things as idols or images, that would have been a lot easier than what you're telling us right now. I understand. I told you that last week when I said, you shall have no other gods before the Lord your God. This week we're talking about not assigning images to the Lord our God. I'm not worshiping that image. What's the clear danger? The clear danger is this. If that image is present in your mind... When you enter into the worship of God, you now 
have an image made by man of the God you are worshiping, and you are dangerously close to violating, if not already violating, the commandment to not have an image or likeness of God before you. But pastor, I'm not worshiping that. No, but I'm going to be 43 this year. And I have no idea how many times I read a Bible story, read a gospel account, and go to that movie I saw when I was 8, or 9, or 10, or 40. I'm not here to condemn those that are watching depictions of Christ. I'm here to say, I don't know if we should be watching depictions of Christ. And we may be dangerously close to violating, if not violating, the second commandment when we put those images in our mind because you cannot see the Lord Christ's image and then not think of it as you approach God's word, as you gather in worship, all of a sudden there's the image of the thing that you saw. I'm not worshiping that image though, no, but is that image in your mind as you worship God? Because if that image is in your mind as you worship God, you are worshiping the right God wrongly. No image. Well, but pastor, the thing is, it helps me worship God better. Somebody's like, do you make these things up? No, I don't make things up. I listen to what people say, and then I consider them in light of the scripture. And I have been told. But that helps me worship better, because I have a better idea of what it was like. This is what is to help you worship the best way possible. What you are saying when you say that helps me worship better, what you are saying is that your faith needs visual help. And all of a sudden, we become guilty of worshiping by sight as opposed to in spirit and in truth. There is no help necessary to our worship other than God's word and the spirit of God. Heavy application. That's the command. Why? Pastor, why would you tell us this? Well, because God's telling us this. Why? Look what he says. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. We, in our predisposition as humans, cannot grasp that word jealous as found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's hard for us to grab as it is entirely unlike human jealousy, which is a product of the fall. This is God's divine jealousy. It's perfect. It's righteous. It's holy. God alone delivers. God alone redeems. God alone dwells with his people. And he is jealous for them to not stray from him and what he has done for them. Interesting. The word in Hebrew, which I know even less than Greek, which I don't know at all, the word in Hebrew for jealous is the word kana. It is found exactly six times in the Old Testament, three times in Exodus and three times in Deuteronomy, and every single time Moses uses it, It is in relation to the people of God not having idols or images in front of them. 
That makes this word unlike any other word. I can't point to other contexts and say, well, it's like this, it's like that. It makes God's jealousy something wholly different than we understand, which it is, because he's perfect, and he's righteous, and he's all things holy, and his jealous is perfect. God, the thought becomes, if God is jealous, well, that must mean that he needs our worship. This is, the, this is the logical thought among those whose mind is not enlightened by the Spirit of God. God must need our worship then. You can write this down and you can live on it for the rest of your days. God does not need your worship. God existed before you and he was doing just fine without you. God needs nothing from you. God desires of you. God created you. I believe it's James who says the spirit he puts within us jealously yearns for. God is desiring that the way that he has created us would be the way that we would live. His jealousy is perfect. God alone is worthy to be praised. God alone is worthy of worship. And when we do not worship him, God is jealous that our affection is then placed on something or someone else. Even images of himself. In his commentary, several were very helpful to me. This one was most helpful. To understand jealous, I hope in the best way that we can here, the jealousy of God. In his commentary on Exodus, Philip Ryken notes another commentary writer's thought on God's jealousy. Quote, A God who is not jealous would be as contemptible I had to look up the word contemptible. I wanted, I wanted synonyms. What does it mean? Deplorable, unthinkable, nasty, like inconceivable. A God who is not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Husbands, any man of you just going to be okay if your wife goes off for another man? Absolutely not. Even single men are able to grasp the, no, that would be my wife and she would belong with me and to no other. And that is the closest we can come to grasping God's jealousy. I made you for me and you desire something else. And God is jealous for that. God's jealousy is perfect perfectly righteous, because as the only God, he alone is worthy of worship. This distinction may help further. Whereas human jealousy simply wants what it does not have, God's jealousy wants what he alone is worthy to have. Second commandment, shall have no images of any likeness, carved or otherwise. It's a command, Riken notes, it's a rule with a reason and a promise and a warning. The promise and the warning. Look at them down in verse 5 and 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The warning. God visiting iniquity on the fathers, children's, children's, children of those who hate him. Those who hate him is important. 
That is, those who are rejecting him as God, those who hate God. What he's saying is that if you choose to hate God and to turn aside to idols, images, or other gods, God will cause there to be a legacy of sin that hangs on from you to the first, to the second, to the third, to the fourth generation. God clearly says in his word that he will not hold children guilty for the sin of the parents. And we all said, that's good news. God is not going to have you stand before him and say to you, because you're father, because you're mother, you're guilty. He's not going to do that to you. That's good news. But he's also very clear that the sin of the parents will affect the sin of their children. And that's where every parent goes, oh my goodness. I, like, this, this haunts me. To be completely clear, I trust the grace and providence of the Lord God, but I know my sin. And to think of my sin affecting my children, well, that became a real problem once I had children. Prior to that, I wasn't thinking about it. But now as my children grow and their habits develop, I think, oh Lord, am I establishing in my fight to be righteous and holy before you? And in my failure at times to stand against sin in my life, am I instilling into my children sinful habits that will affect them in a worse way than they affected me? Wow, is there a call to be on guard as a parent? This thought is at the very heart of man's story, do you understand? Man's father, Adam, sinned. And we inherited his sin. And we can look at his sin and say, he just did one thing. He just ate the fruit that he was told not to. And now consider how sinful man is because of that one sin that was handed down from Adam all the way down to us here today. But we are not guilty because Adam sinned. We are guilty because sin came to us and we sinned. This is why Jesus needed to come. Man alone could not atone for what man had done because all of man is guilty. We needed a substitute who was innocent of sin, who perfectly obeyed God, who died for us, who rose again so that the curse of sin that we inherited from our earthly father could be forgiven. If you're here today, I challenge you, have you repented of sin? Sin separates man from God. Have you confessed, God, I'm a sinner, save me. There's ongoing sin and there is original sin. This is original sin, committed by the Father, handed down to every generation of his people. God is clear, you're not guilty for your parents' sin. You are guilty for your sin. And for every generation that does not turn to God, sin becomes easier. Following God becomes harder. And what are we setting our children up for? Oh, Lord, help us. Wrapped up in this warning is the terrifying thought that your sinful practice will be passed on. If we pay attention to Israel's history, we see over and over and over and over. However, would you look with me? Grace is not out of view. I don't want you to feel the weight of this and just feel condemnation. There's grace found here because look what God says. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice what God does not say. God does not say visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to every generation forever. That's grace, that God would redeem those who have been steeped in sin, those who have been committing sinful acts because of what was passed on to them by their fathers, to not just damn all men for all time. That's grace. 
I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation, but not forever. That's the warning. And then the promise. Showing steadfast love to thousands of those who keep my commandments. Someone may be doing a comparison. And you may be looking and seeing generation and then thousands of those. And you may be tempted to say, why is God visiting why is God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on generations, but only showing steadfast love to thousands? You may see generations and in individual people, but the truest translation of this is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation and showing steadfast love to thousands of generations who love me and who keep my commandments. Whereas the Warning is to the third and fourth generation. The steadfast love of God is promised to thousands of generations that love and keep his commandments. This is deeper than I can go this morning. This is deeply covenantal between God and man. This phrase is used over and over throughout the Old Testament. God's saying, I will give steadfast love. My steadfast love will be. It's so deep and so beautiful and so awesome. Plenty for us to think about in all of this. I have been dwelling on this commandment for quite some time, well over a year. I come now to see how my innocent violation of the second commandment was affecting my worship of God. There's a hit TV show out there, and we've all heard about it. And I was a great fan until I couldn't sit in worship of God or read God's word without picturing that show. I'm just going to call it out. Everybody's like, are you going to say it? Yes, The Chosen. Pastor, are you saying we shouldn't watch it? I'm saying you should be very careful if you think you should watch it. I know what it was doing to me. I was picturing that portrayal of Christ. Instead of going, as we talked about in our men's Sunday school class, instead of going to the fount that God supplies and allowing this to be what drives the image of Christ in my mind. This is something that I felt the need to repent over in my life, and I'm not telling you what to do, but if you're feeling that conviction, I'll trust the Holy Spirit in your life. I've repented of that, and I do what I can to not look at images of Christ until I walk into Dollar General and there's a rack with his picture on it. You're not going to escape it. But what are you going to do with it? Paul says, take it captive to the obedience of Christ. That's not what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Jesus looked like. And I'll see one day because my faith is in him and he's returning for me to take me there to be with him. Then I will see. Paul says, now we see in part, then we will see in full. And so we come to ask you some questions and then we'll sing and go on with the rest of our Lord's Day. Can you see where images or likenesses of Christ have perhaps invaded your thinking and impacted the way that you worship? This calls for deep inspection of your own life. Are you able to see where images and likenesses of Christ have invaded your thought and impacted the way that you worship? Is God so awesome and so great because you saw some painting or play of Christ? Because you watched some TV show or movie? The people of Israel were standing in front of Mount Sinai, and the mountain trembled. 
and it smoked, and there was thunder, and there was lightning, and there was a trumpet that got louder and louder and louder, and there was a warning to not touch the mountain, and there was a voice that spoke to them, and they saw nothing, and they feared, and they worshiped, and they said, oh, Moses, you speak to us. We cannot live if God speaks anymore. And we so trivially think about watching or taking into our mind images that God says, you shall not have. You shall have no other gods. You shall have no images of other gods, and you shall have no images of me. Would you pray with me? Father, forgive us. Forgive us, Father, for thinking that it's okay to take in these images made by man and think that it somehow represents in a greater way to us your truth. Forgive us, Father, for not walking in strict obedience to you and not to man. Father, forgive us. Cleanse our minds and thoughts of man-made images, I pray. Father, cleanse our fleshly ways, ways that cause us to stand out and be unlike the culture around us. God, cleanse our minds from images made by man of you. Father, I pray that you would help us to see you purely as your word says, purely as you have declared. Father, I pray that you would burn on our minds the image of who you are through the truth that you have declared. Father, I pray that you would burn onto our minds what your word declares about the only image of the invisible God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that the true and pure and holy words that you have declared and written to us would be what drives our thoughts and drives our worship Father, that as we worship, as we read your word, as we sing your praise, as we pray to you for help, as we fellowship with one another, God, may it be your word that drives us to worship you rightly as you have commanded. Father, may we be a people who know your steadfast love. Oh God, we call you and we know that you will to honor your word and we know that you will to show us your steadfast love as we love you, and keep your commands. We praise you for your good grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.